The views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. It is time for Break the Business, where we empower indie creators and have some fun along the way. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. I'm excited for this show as we drift further and further into December. I can feel the holidays coming, and it just puts me in such a wonderful mood. I love this time of year for so many reasons. You know, yeah, friends, family, togetherness. Also, the entertainment industry basically shuts down for the last two weeks of December. So your boy gets to take a little break. And we're all very happy, happy about that. And as if we didn't have enough things to be happy about this time of year, we are also joined by a wonderful co-host this week. Katie Zaccardi is here with us. Hi, Katie. Hi, Ryan. Oh, what a what a wonderful smiling face to get to see. <laughs> Katie, thank you so much for accommodating this humble program this week. Obviously, we normally record this show on a Wednesday. We had to move it to Thursday because I had to administer a final exam. I had my little professor hat on on Wednesday late night last night giving this final, <laughs> so I couldn't do my show. But thankfully, you roll with the punches and you're here with us on a Thursday. I'm happy to be here. And you know what? I feel like usually this is on a Wednesday and I still have to get through two more days of the week. But now I'm like, oh, great. It's it's the weekend already. Like it's like a little, you know, when you have a day off and your week's shorter, this is what it feels like to me. So I got to tell you, I got the same feeling. Like <laughs> you know, we, we did this on Wednesdays for a couple years. And yeah, like it's, you know, Wednesday's hump day. It's, yep. you know, it's the middle of the week. And so like doing this show in the middle of the week, it's like, oh man, we're kind of climbing a mountain here. It's a busy time, but something about doing it on a Thursday, you know, you're going to sleep. It's Friday and the, basically yep. the week's over it's at that point. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm going to shut my laptop after the show. And like, I'm actually done working for the week, which isn't true, but in my mind it is. You That's know? right. <laughs> You'll be happy to know viewers and listeners, if you feel the same way that Katie and I do about this, starting, I think, on the second or third week of 2024, Break the Business is going to be permanently moving to Thursday nights uh, for its live stream. And so we'll get to make this more of a thing that I think we're all going to get happy with. This is a it, it, this move has been a long time coming, moving the live stream to Thursday, because what I've come to find with doing it on Wednesday is it really messes with the radio show, which comes out the following Monday. So when we record on Wednesday and the radio show goes up on Monday, a lot can happen between Wednesday and Monday, and our, some of our news might get obsolete. So a Thursday show makes the radio show a little more fresh, and so it, it's easier for you, easier for me. It makes the radio audience happy. I think nothing but winners moving the show to Thursdays. I agree. Yeah. Thursday, is th Thursday is the way. Thursday, you know what? You just look at look at the branding that's happening here. Thursday is the way, viewers and listeners. I could not agree more. A lot to be happy about on this wonderful Thursday. We got a great interview coming up later in the show. I am excited to uh, share an interview that we had with acclaimed crooner Russ Lawrenson. An amazing story. This is you know this guy has been doing the club singing entertaining people, you know, singing the great American songbook, right? The Sinatra classics, the Nat King Cole, that kind of thing. He's been crushing it for a long time. He has an amazing story of overcoming cancer and just con just continuing the great tradition of our of our fine crooners and also talks about his work as a children's book author. So a lot of cool indie artist stuff in the Russ Lawrence and story. So we're excited to bring that interview to you a little bit later in the show. It's going to put you in the right mindset for holiday season, I think. But before we get to that, Katie, I wanted to talk to you about a piece of news that came across my timeline in like the last 48 hours that actually sort of takes place more in your neck of the woods as a Nashvillian. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that where you are, 
country singer Luke Combs is practically the mayor, right? Like he is, he's a, he's a big time in Nashville because he's a huge country star. He's got a big hit right now with the cover of fast car by trace, uh, the original Ch- old Tracy Chapman song. Mm-hmm. And so like, when I say Luke Combs, that's, that's a big name where you are, right? Yeah. And honestly, I think he's a big name everywhere. I have family up in New York who are pretty big country fans and they love him too. So yeah, he, he is, he's out there. Well, Luke Combs had a rather interesting week, and I want to talk about what happened this week with Luke Combs because I think it's an amazing story and of, you know, getting through like a really tough, almost a scandal as an artist, but also performing something of a masterclass in navigating that scandal and turning it into a PR victory that not only does right by you as the artist, but does right by your fans. And Luke Combs had one of those moments this week. And I think talking about what happened to Luke Combs this week uh, is a great legal story, but also it's a great lesson in fan engagement that all indie creators can learn from. And so I want to get right into it. So here's what happened, Katie. And and I think you might have read a little bit about this story, but let's get the viewers and listeners caught up. We have a the main character in this story is a woman from Illinois named Nicole Harness, who is a big Luke Combs fan. You know, uh, much like many of the folks out in Nashville. And as you noted, pretty much throughout the country, he's got fans everywhere. But Nicole Harness is one of them. She's also disabled and is struggling to make ends meet, has a lot of medical bills and things like that. And one of the things that she does to try to make a little bit of extra money for herself is she has an Etsy shop where she sells these tumblers, these little glasses that she makes herself that have Luke Combs's face on them. And, you know, she's not she's not making a mint selling these like it's it's almost a hobby just as much as it's a, a way to make money. She sold 18 of these tumblers with Luke Combs's face on them for twenty dollars a piece. So she made about, you know, 300 bucks or something like that. And, you know, just just, you know, part of it is she's trying to make a little bit of money. Part of it is, you know, she's trying to express her fandom for one Luke Combs. Mm-hmm. Now, I put my lawyer hat on. This yeah. is this is copyright infringement. It's yeah. copyright infringement and trademark infringement. If you're taking images of Luke Combs, it's you know right of publicity. It's appropriation. There's like a uh, a bunch of different laws that are uh, being violated here by this Luke Combs fan. And so, you know, if we're just going by technical law, you know, Ryan's got his lawyer hat on. Yeah, you're not allowed to do this. And you know, yeah. you don't and you don't need to be a lawyer to know that you're not allowed to do this. Mm-hmm. You and I, we can't make merchandise of our favorite artist and then sell that merchandise. Right. And so Nicole Harness was sued by Luke Combs for $250,000. A a pretty substantial sum for anybody, Mm -hmm. particularly substantial for, you know, a woman in uh, Nicole's situation. This was a, this was a pretty devastating burden. And because of the way this lawsuit was set up, she didn't even know about the lawsuit until she had already found out that she lost. And how is that possible? That you know, a, a perfectly legitimate question to ask, right? Because you know, you're not a lawyer, Katie, but you know that in America, when you get sued, you know about it. We have service of process. You know, you see it in the movies all the time, right? Like somebody knocks on your door and says, "Hey, I'm flower uh, flowers delivery." Ooh, flowers for me. Yep. Oh, never mind. Just kidding. You're served. Here's a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always happen just like that in the movies, but generally, the law says that you have a right to have notice of when you are sued, and that usually comes in the form of personal service. A process server shows up and hands you a lawsuit, or if you're a business. Somebody will serve the paperwork to a registered agent that you have designated as the person that if you're going to sue me, this is the person you talk to. Mm-hmm. But a weird quirk of the law in Illinois set up a situation where uh, in in this particular place where Nicole was, there was a kind of a unique thing in the law that allowed people to be served in lawsuits like this involving copyright trademark infringement allowed them to be served by email. An email that just gets, you know, sent to you it says, "Hey, you've been sued." Now, yeah. I can only imagine how many emails you get a day, Katie Sicardi, mm-hmm. and how many of them probably end up in your junk folder or in your, you know, out Microsoft Outlook has this like non-focused inbox 
or maybe you know yeah. you just you just miss it right and so we can all realize why suing somebody via email is a pretty stupid way to communicate lawsuits because we can always ignore an email well yeah. according to nicole harness the lawsuit ended up in her junk mail folder and so she never saw the lawsuit uh the court because she had never replied to any of the legal filings the court entered what's called a default judgment, which basically means you lose because you didn't respond to any legal filings. And the court entered in this $250,000 judgment against a woman who is broke, who has a lot of medical bills, who is disabled, um, all for, you know, selling $300 worth of Luke Combs tumblers that she made herself to help make ends meet. Yeah. Um, As a lawyer, if a client were to come to me and say, hey, I see this happening. You know, this person is, you know, stealing my work. What do I do? My my response 100% of the time is going to be, we'll send them a cease and desist letter. Right. And they'll stop. Yeah, and exactly. They that's almost how people usually start is just with that, not with Yeah, suing. exactly. I mean, and, and that's always the way to do it because one, you know, first of all, you don't want the PR hit of suing a particularly sympathetic defendant like this woman is like you're going to it's going to destroy your career. Yeah. And secondly, you're not going to get two hundred fifty thousand dollars from this woman. She is yeah. what we call in the legal profession judgment proof. And so it's there's no upside to suing a particular person like. Yeah. This. And, you know, and so obviously when this lawsuit came out and this woman realized that she now owes two hundred fifty thousand dollars. It was devastating for her. They, uh, a, a local news agency did a news report on her and it made it onto TikTok and a bunch of TikTokers immediately inundated Luke Combs with comments of why are you doing this? What's the matter with you? What the hell is going on? You're a monster. You know, I'm not a fan of your music anymore. All the things that Luke Combs would not want from a PR standpoint, he got <laughs> yeah. for this. No bueno. And so, right, no bueno. So he's not in a good situation right now. And obviously neither is Nicole Harness. So what happened next and what Luke Combs did, I think is a PR masterclass. He took a particularly bad, what could have been a, what could have ended his career and, you know, took immediate action and did a lot to address the situation. And I'm not going to speak for Luke Combs. Lauren, do you have the TikTok video that Luke put up? So just a little bit of a preface. He posted this, I believe, yesterday as we recorded this, not 24 hours after the local news report of this woman came out. So he acted quickly. And here's the video that he made on TikTok. What's up, guys? Luke here. Uh, It's 7.27 a.m. here in Tennessee. Um, I woke up at 5 a.m. to use the restroom, and the first thing I saw was this, um, a woman that's being sued by me for $250,000. I've spent the last two hours um, trying to to make this right, trying to figure out what's going on, because I was completely and utterly unaware of this. Um, So we reached out. Firstly, my manager reached out to this news station that ran this piece to try to get some info. Um, And so we do have a company... uh, that goes after folks, uh, only supposedly large corporations operating internationally that make millions and millions of dollars making counterfeit t-shirts, things of that nature, running illegal businesses. Um, and apparently this woman, Nicole has somehow gotten, uh, wrapped into that. Um, and that makes me absolutely sick to my stomach. So I was able to get Nicole's phone number. I spoke to her this morning. She told me that, you know, she was absolutely shocked by this. I was, I'm so apologetic. Talking to her, I just, it makes me sick, honestly, um, that this would happen, especially at the holidays. I can't imagine being in her shoes. She told me there's $5,500 locked up in her Amazon account. Um, I'm going to double that, send her $11,000 today, just so she doesn't have anything to worry about. All right. So he goes on you know, to continuing to, cry. yeah, it, no, it, it's super heartwarming. Like oh my he, gosh. like the, the angry mob, like this video was so good. The angry mob was at his door, torches and pitchforks. Like he saw his entire music career flashing before his eyes. Yeah. And in one TikTok video completely turned things around. Yeah. And so in addition, so, you know, if, if you missed the last piece of, of the clip that we showed you, the first thing that he did after calling her, immediately apologizing, apologizing to his fans, is 
He sent her $11,000 to help pay her medical bills. Yeah. And what he also did, which we didn't, which he, he goes on to say in the video, we didn't play it long enough, was he actually is going to sell his own tumbler with his face on them. And all of the proceeds are going to Nicole Harness to pay off her medical bills. So he's going to like, you know, you know, these tumblers are going to make so much money for this woman that, you know, oh this is going to gosh. completely change her life. He's also going to fly Harness and her family to an upcoming concert so that she can meet him in person so the family can meet him in person wow uh, completely and, and so yeah now he's getting universal acclaim he took what could have been a you know career ending legal blunder and turned it into something that i think is going to make his q rating go through the roof but yeah. a lot of great lessons to learn from this right katie yeah. act fast apologize explain but don't try to excuse your behavior mm -hmm. and fix it fix it fix it go out overwhelming out of your way to try to uh, fix the damage that was caused and show yeah. people that you're genuinely contrite i mean a, mm -hmm. a lot i mean i feel like they're going to play this particular video in like marketing and public relations classes in colleges for generations i honestly think that last part is really the pivotal part because he i mean he could have dealt with it privately he could have had a pre-written instagram story statement oh i'm so sorry i didn't know this yep. has been rectified but he got on camera and you could just tell by the way he was talking that he felt very passionately about this that he truly was devastated and that he truly was going to fix it not just by the actions he took but i really think that like you, you can tell someone's energy. You can read someone's energy. You can tell when someone's being ingenuine and you can tell when people are being genuine. And I think him doing it in the way that he did, which was felt kind of off the cuff and you could say unprepared, but I'm sure he did prepare for it, but it wasn't so contrived that it again felt ingenuine is really working in his favor. Yeah. People we've seen this a lot where when people, when, when, artists or other celebrities public figures quote unquote step in it they will create a you know they'll put out a statement or they'll often read a statement that you can tell has been reviewed by dozens of lawyers yes. and publicists and obviously as an artist if you're in one of these situations you should always talk to your lawyers and publicists yeah but there is often overkill when it comes to letting too many people shape your statement and it loses all of its humanity so mm -hmm. i'm sure he talked to some professionals before he put himself out there but he made sure that the statement was in his own voice, uh, reflected his actual feelings and heart about this, and he put it out there and the fans responded positively. You could have imagined, you, you know, he could have done so many things wrong with this, right? It could have yeah. been the like, you know, I'm sorry for how this made you feel or, be, you know. <laughs> You know, that, that one's yeah. always important or Oops, we didn't know about it. Like, yeah. Sorry. Or like, this isn't my fault. This is the, you know, whatever company I hired to do my lawsuits for me. I didn't do uh -huh. anything wrong. Yeah. Right? He could like, there could have been a, a thousand different ways that he could have made this worse as have public figures in the past who have been in a situation like this. Yes. And he did almost pretty much every step perfectly. Ryan, did you ever see the Colleen Ballinger, also known as Miranda Sings, drama oh that happened God. at the beginning of the year? Because I, I, I mean, I don't know how much time we have. I, we don't have to get into it deeply, but I have to be honest with you. I kept thinking about that while talking about this and while watching that video because I feel like this is the like polar opposite of what she did for fans or for listeners who don't know what happened. Basically she was in some hot water people were alleging that she basically had been inappropriate with fans and she decided that the best way to handle this was not like the pre-written overly lawyered statement she decided to take an approach of like putting taking it in her own hands but she recorded a you like 10 minute ukulele oh my song God apology but she never apologized and it was as you brought up what luke combs did is he took responsibility basically like he didn't place blame whereas what colleen did was a lot of like deflecting and blame placing and calling people like the toxic gossip train and then she had to 
disappear for months and months and months and kind of like it honestly killed her career. Like it killed her career because she acted out of emotion, but out of ego as well. And I feel like Luke Combs acted out of emotion, but from a place of how can I do right by my fans, not place blame and get defensive and get egoic about this. And granted they're two separate things, like two completely different situations in terms of what happened, but regardless people are saying you did this you bad person and he could have easily said no i'm not a bad person i didn't even know about it but that's not what he did he handled it with grace and people responded positively to that sort of accountability yeah it was just really comforting to see katie i was this close i was this close to forgetting about the toxic (laughs) gossip train ukulele (laughs) song like it was almost out of my brain it was just like one more day 24 more hours i mean i love the ukulele that song almost ruined the ukulele for me like my ukuleles are collecting dust on the wall because of what colleen ballinger did to that precious instrument literally same mine is behind my desk right here and i have not touched it in months because i'm like actually i don't it's like embarrassing after that like embarrassing to like play the ukulele it's like sorry i actually don't even know i don't know about that i don't know what you're talking about ukulele what she like, really messed that up. Like that is the masterclass. Ruined, ruined that beautiful do. instrument for everybody. Oh my it's gosh. just see, like now, like when I when I when I when I bring the ukulele out at parties, it used to always be, hey, play somewhere over the rainbow. Now it's do toxic gossip train. <laughs> it's the worst. God. Um, oh man. Okay. Well, I mean, if, kudos to Luke Combs for for, uh, you know, turning that potentially negative situation into a positive one, teaching all of us along the way a really great lesson in fan engagement. Before we go to break, before we bring on Russ Lawrence, and let's bring back a classic, the AI Overlord Tip of the Week. We're getting back to basics, Katie Zaccardi. You know, we've taken the AI overlord tip of the week in a lot of kind of weird directions. <laughs> and I feel like we have gotten away from what I think the viewers and listeners like the most of what we do with the tip of the week, which I think is the same thing that you like the most in the AI overlord tip of the week. And that's when we connect the tip of the week to like movies and pop culture, right? Yes. Where we we kind of, you know, do some sketch comedy and really put chat GPT to the test in terms yeah. of the stuff that it can put together. So, question for you, Katie. Okay. I, mean, I, I don't I don't want to make assumptions just by like the way you look, but are you a fan of the Hallmark Christmas movies? I am not not a fan. <laughs> I, I <laughs> Okay, I'm a dabbler. I'm a dabbler in the occasional cheesy Christmas movie. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I I can't I'm with you. I can't get enough. So, you might like this. Then I asked chat GPT this week in honor of the AI overlord tip of the week okay. to give us a tip of the week for indie artists about music merchandise in honor of Luke Combs, but do it in the style of the male love interest of a Hallmark Christmas movie doing a monologue to okay. the female character in the same movie. Okay, I'm ready. Does that make sense? All right. So let me see if we can set a little Christmas scene here on my camera. Let's see what we got here. Uh, One of these buttons will do it. Uh, (laughs) There we go. I had to to run through all the different green screens. (laughs) A little holiday fireplace, you know. Um, All right. Let's set the scene a little bit of music. And here is our AI Overlord tip of the week. Again, it's a Hallmark Christmas movie tip of the week. Hey there. You know, running this quaint little Christmas ornament shop in our snowy small town has taught me a few things about crafting things that touch people's hearts. And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight under this mistletoe decorated doorway. I know I'm just a humble Christmas ornament shop owner and you're an independent musician who also happens to be a high-powered businesswoman from the big city who also happens to be the granddaughter of Santa Claus. But I still think I have some useful advice to share. As an indie musician, making merchandise isn't just about selling products. It's about creating little pieces of joy that connect your fans to your work. It's like these hand-painted ornaments. Each one tells a story. 
captures a memory. When you're designing your merchandise, think of it as crafting a keepsake for your fans, something that holds a piece of the magic you create. You see, each brushstroke here is thoughtful, intentional. In the same way, your merchandise should reflect the essence of your work. Whether it's a lyric from a song or an iconic image from your art or a line from your book, let it resonate with the story you're letting through your craft. And remember, quality matters. Just like the care I put into selecting the finest materials for these ornaments, ensure that your merchandise is something your fans will cherish. High quality, durable, something that lasts, just like the memories we'll create together. <laughs> Lastly, engage with your fans. Get their input. What do they love most about your work? Maybe run a contest where they can contribute designs or ideas. And definitely, definitely don't sue your broke fans who make tumblers with your face on them to pay their medical bills. That's <laughs> not really in the Christmas spirit. So, take it from a humble Christmas ornament shop owner. Your merchandise is a reflection of your art. Craft with love, thoughtfulness, and a touch of holiday magic. And maybe, just maybe, you'll be inspired with enough of the Christmas spirit to create some great merch for your fans and also not sell my Christmas ornament shop to your big city fiance's real estate development company. Merry Christmas. Beautiful. 10 out of 10. Ah. Oh my gosh, I really hope she doesn't sell his company to the big city business. No, definitely she will. She will she will stay in the small town because she's the granddaughter of Santa Claus and she's yeah. going to help her new Christmas ornament shop owner love interest run their ornament shop together. She's going to give up her big city law practice. I think I saw a tweet about this where somebody was like, just once I'd like to see the Hallmark Christmas movie where she just keeps her job in the big city. Like, <laughs> I can't move to this small town. I have a law practice. I make a lot. I'm making $380,000 a year. <laughs> Why don't you move in with me to the big city? We could have two houses if I. What are you doing? <laughs> no, um, literally, like, where's the practicality? <laughs> yeah, certainly not. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, in the midst of any of that, were there any insights that you sort of like drew from about merchandise that you're like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, honestly, I was just so wooed by your reading of it that <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was so distracting. Um, yeah, I like the idea of getting fans involved, too. That, I think, is fun. I think that musicians, at the very least, you need to be polling your fans to see what they want. Um, or if you're lucky, like Luke Combs, having something behind, <laughs> a, a mission behind it or a message behind uh, the pieces of merch that you're going to put out. But I feel like there's so many different ways to get creative. Having your fans do a contest is one, just literally asking them what they want is another and personalizing stuff to you. You know, that's what the heart of Christmas is about is being on brand. <laughs> Sounds like you're trying to channel my character a little bit there. Yeah. I, I felt, I'm like, um, it's about the brand, not, not the, not being generic help i i'm i'm getting more impressed with chat gbt's capability as a comedy writer so that bit at the end about not selling the christmas ornament shop to the big city fiance's real estate company that was all chat gpt <laughs> which which to me is pretty impressive there's some yeah. there's some good comedy writing in that chat gpt4 the joke about being the granddaughter of Santa Claus, that's pure Ryan Corella, baby. There's, I you know, should have known. <laughs> I should have known. <laughs> Even the AI overlord needs a little comedy punch-up from time I to time. I did think it was a little lengthy for two people standing under a mistletoe door frame, though. <laughs> <laughs> I probably could have had the overlord tighten it up again. At some point, the female love interest is like, just let me kiss this yeah, guy already. I Why is he still me? talking about merchandise? Yeah, I literally don't care. <laughs> All right, let's take a break, and we got Russ Lawrenson coming after the break. Thank you all for checking out Break the Business. We're back in two. Ryan Corella here. I hope you're enjoying the show, and I hope that you're getting a lot out of it. I do what I do because I care about creators like you. A lot. 
I've dedicated my career to helping creative professionals, entrepreneurs, and organizations move forward. I do it by hosting this program, and I'm also proud to do it in my legal practice. If you're a creative professional looking for solutions-oriented legal services to help you further your goals, I'd love to help. My firm RKPA does contracts, commercial law, copyright, trademark, and more. Visit rkpalaw.com to learn more. That's rkpalaw.com. Ryan A. Corella, PA, Miami, Florida. Streaming services for Break the Business provided by L.E.K. Entertainment. L.E.K. Entertainment is a full-service entertainment company offering everything from consultations to full-scale events and productions, including audio and video productions, voiceovers, staged theatrical productions, script and music development, and streaming services. For more information, visit lekentertainment.com. L.E.K. Entertainment wants to help you bring your story to life. Thanks for supporting Break the Business. If you have a question or topic that you want us to discuss, email us at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. You can follow the host, that's me, on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R, and you can follow the show at The BTB Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook, and on all major podcast platforms. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Break the Business, everybody. I realize I still have the Hallmark Holiday Special background on. There we go. Ryan Corelli here with Katie Zaccardi, having just a grand old time. Thank you for checking us out wherever you're checking us out, whether it is SiriusXM 145, on podcasting platforms, live streaming platforms. We just love that you are joining us where you're joining us and it's it's you know this is the time of year we should be thanking you so this is exactly what we are doing and i'm thankful to be here with you katie thanks for uh, hanging with us all year thanks for having me it is always such a delight to be on the podcast oh bless you all right let us go now to our interview with russ lawrenson our guest this week is an acclaimed crooner of the American Songbook, whose latest release, Standard Time Live in New York, will be out on December 1st. Our guest's album release event will be at the Triad in New York City on December 4th. And you can find out more about our guest's work by visiting www.russlawrenson.com. We are happy to welcome Russ Lawrenson on to Break the Business. Hi, Russ. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, I can already feel the positive energy. I like where this interview is going. I I mean, I mean, you got such an infectious smile and your room looks so bright. I'm I'm already excited for how this interview is going to go. This is going to be a blast. Awesome. Well, it's a little it's a little blank. We're getting ready. We, we, oh, this bookshelf gets emptied for Christmas and we put all kinds of Christmas stuff up. So the only thing we've got is a new Christmas ornament that we bought a little reindeer. So and that's adorable. Sitting up here alone. <laughs> Well, you have to promise me that when the shelf is fully decorated with all of the holiday cheer, you got to let us know what this looks like. Because awesome. I will. Because I can look at that shelf right now and it's telling me that you just have a beautiful blank canvas waiting to be filled with the watercolor that is your holiday decorations. And we need to see the end product. So please send that. Absolutely. Our I absolutely all right. will. I got to tell you, Russ, among my favorite interview subjects that we have on Break the Business are the crooners, are the ones who cut their teeth singing in clubs, sing the classics, the kind of stuff that would make my parents and grandparents smile if they got to hear again. What drew you to pursuing that area of music? What do you like most about it? You know, um, it's interesting. I came out of a theater tradition, right? So I've been performing since I was seven years old. I, I, I got one of the coveted um, elf roles in the Elves and the Shoemaker uh, hit play that all uh, elementary schools do. And through that, um, I went through a tradition of doing musical theater, um, from which a lot of the great American songbook is born. You know, they, oh, yeah. they, they wrote for Broadway for the most part. That was the popular song of the day. Um, and so I came through that. And then I was introduced to great jazz versions of those kind of songs by people like Ella and Frank and Tony Bennett and uh, Bobby Darren and all those people. Um, and it was just a music that spoke to me. And I'll be honest, I, I didn't have a lot of interest in it when I was a kid. I was much more into you know, Broadway types of things. 
And the thing that changed my life and a lot of people my age, singers my age, uh, life and career is the movie When Harry Met Sally. If you remember that, the soundtrack of that album was primarily Harry Connick Jr. doing all of these great standards, you know, because I was young and hip. I wasn't going to be interested in Frank Sinatra. That was my parents' music. Um, and I learned from, from that album that the songs were the thing. They, they are uh, pieces of art, you know, and really uh, uniquely American arts, one of the great American art forms um, that have great melodies, have really special lyrics that mean something, and then are usually paired with singers who have a great jazz sensibility. And all of those things combined in that album for me to wake me up. And it was from that I started explaining, oh, that's a really cool song. Uh, you know, it had to be you. I mean, Harry didn't write that, so where did it come from? And then I started to do the exploration and realize what was out there and, um, and how many great songs there were. And the really fun part about what we're doing now, the album that's coming out, is it's my contention that that songbook is still being written. Right. Um, it's uh, it didn't stop being written in 1959. Um, it's still going on today. And the point of the album, the show that it's based on was all to prove that great songs were still being written. These beautiful songs that are, again, it's strong melody. It's it's meaningful lyrics paired with the jazz sensibility. And I've disappeared. Have we lost our Internet? I can. Nope, I can, still, I can, see, I can hear and see you great. <laughs> Don't worry, we didn't lose you yet. And uh, glad that we haven't because you just bringing up the American Songbook makes me smile. And I love the idea of the great American Songbook being a living document that yeah. perhaps there is stuff being made today that we will, that generations from now, we will refer to with the same reverence as we do the old Frank Sinatra songs. I just, I'm trying to imagine it though. Like, us as like grandparents, like going to our grandchildren and being like, let me play an old record. And it's like an Olivia yeah. Rodrigo song or something right, like that. Right. Well, but I'll give you an example on, on the new album uh, we're putting out. One of the songs we recorded, re -re you know, covered is yeah. Lionel Richie's Hello, which you wouldn't think of as a standard, but think about it. It's got strong lyrics and we did it in a, we borrowed a, an arrangement from Paul Anka, who did a couple of albums of what he called rock songs, but done in a big band swing style. And oh so my God, I've heard this album, it's great. And you, you know, I'm alone with you inside my mind is, is a really different way to do it, but it's the same song. And that's the mark of a great American songbook song that it can be sung by dozens of artists in really different ways and still be true to what it was when it was written i don't think lionel richie set out to write something for the great american songbook he was writing a pop song but that's what the great american songbook is it's pop songs of each generation well we need two things to make this songbook happen we need the great songs and then we need people like you, Russ, who are sort of the ambassadors of this songbook, helping carry it forward into subsequent generations with the albums you're putting out right now. Let me talk to you about your album, because sure. when I heard the story about what this album is and how it came together and everything behind it, it's, it's one of the more powerful things I've ever heard, just jaw-dropping. Let me catch the viewers and listeners up, okay. and if I get any of the facts wrong, please correct me. But... Back in 2021, you were diagnosed with tonsil cancer, the treatment of which has had lasting effects on your singing voice. And so with this new album, you have these are live recordings that took place before your diagnosis. So in light of everything that's happened in the last couple of years and putting this album out now, what does this release mean to you? Um, a couple of things. One is when we, when we recorded it back in 2008, the idea was to put a live CD out the following year. But in 2008, if your viewers will recall, there was a little thing called the Great Recession at the time. And so yeah. lots of people lost their jobs. There was no money. Theater, uh, you know, touring dried up because theaters didn't have any money. Audiences weren't going out. So we recorded these things and we put them in a box and they went in, a, in storage. And that's where they've stayed ever, ever since. I've never even listened to them until this year pulling them out there, in fact there were songs that i didn't remember that we had done in the show um which it, so it was exciting to hear it it was exciting to then bring them back out 
massage and realize what we had. And it's the the beauty of the 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 recording was that the they were both done uh, at a club in New York City in 2008. And the fun part was that most of the composers, not all, Lionel Richie didn't show up, you know, um, we had a ticket waiting for him at the door. But most of the composers whose songs are on the album came to the show. So I'm I got to sing for the the actual composers, um, and most of the songs have been written in the in the previous twenty years or so. So from the from the mid early eighties up until about uh, two thousand eight, um, and it was really fun to work with the composers on these songs, much like Frank Sinatra worked with Johnny Mandel, or you know uh, uh, um, uh, Judy Garland worked with Johnny Mercer. Like th those pairings happened, and there was a, there was a great synergy between them. So what's really fun for me is that it's. It's a blast from the past in terms of the way that we work together. It was a live album working with great musicians in front of an audience who was appreciative, but also working with those composers and having them there and uh, and appreciating what we were doing and 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 putting a spotlight on it. So what's really great to me now, what the album means is that 15 years later, we listen to these songs and you know what? Many of them have become standards. Lots of artists have covered these songs in the intervening years. I happen to be one of the first ones to do it. Um, and a lot of the composers have been very generous as we've been putting out the album saying, you know, you're still my favorite version. Not gonna say that you know, um, one in particular. But uh, it's it's nice to say, I was right. 15 years ago, these were great songs and they've only gotten better over, over the years, which shows that the composers knew what they were doing. They wrote quality material and these songs need to be out there for more and more singers to interpret in their own way um, and uh, for audiences to find and make them classics. Uh, I, won't, I won't go too much into our release show, but the, because you've mentioned the diagnosis, I, I can't really sing anymore um, as a, in a performing way. So the album release event is a little sticky, right? Like most album release parties are the artist singing songs from the album, but I can't do that. Yeah. So I've invited a slew of other artists to come in and cover the material, which not unintentionally proves the point that these songs can be interpreted by other people. It doesn't have to be what I do with it. They're going to sing these songs, put their own spin on it. And these are, these are really great singers that, uh, that a lot of people know. Um, and they'll hear it in a different way as well as the way that we did it on the album. So that's the, the sort of the passing of the torch of the, of the songbook. It just keeps going and keeps getting written. I was just thinking that how you how you having other artists do covers of these songs at your release party just further exemplifies the universal nature of this great American songbook and how it we all kind of have collective ownership over it and you are passing the torch and somebody passed you the torch and that's really powerful for me. I I apologize. I have one more question sure. about your diagnosis and then I will absolutely uh, go somewhere else with it. But this is just something that I think is. There's, I think, something that you can share that I think would be valuable for me to know and also that we can share with the other viewers and listeners who, you know, experience similar adversity. But when I sort of put together what my greatest fears are in life, I mean, me losing even a small part of my voice is up there. And I'm by no means a singer. Lots of people can attest to that. But I talk for a living, either as a lawyer or here in the radio. And... To me, if I were to lose the ability to do that or to do that even less effectively, like, I, I would consider that so difficult for me to go through. It would probably be like the best thing that ever happened to my wife. She'd be thrilled if I talked less. But um, it, it would be tough for me to kind of work through that. But I look at you. You appear to be one of the happiest people I've ever laid eyes on. You were just you were just exuding sunlight in, just, you know, in, in everything that I'm seeing right now. So... Is there a lesson that you can teach us about this in terms of adversity, in terms of encountering this kind of adversity and not letting it change what, you know, how wonderful life can still be? You know, the most important thing that for me was that I continued to find a way to both have a creative outlet and to be valuable to the world. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a gay man. I'm not going to have children, especially now at my age, um, never was. But these albums that I've done, the songs that I've sung, the recordings that are there, those are my children. Those are going to go on. 
and they tell a story about me. I was here, I did something and I was trying to bring joy into the world. And that is what the whole thing is about. Leave the world better than you found it. And that's where my happiness comes from. So to be able to dust off these recordings, pull them out of the vault, and make an album out of it, knowing that's going to go on. I mean, there, are, I, there, I recorded a, an album back in 2006 um, with a Christmas song on it that is my bread and butter. 20 years later, it's still my number one hit, gets thousands of Spotify plays every year. And that just makes me feel really good that there are people in the world who like this song so much and what I did with it, that they've made it part of their life. And I'm now part of their life and their holiday tradition and, and, and the things that they listen to. So dealing with my own adversity, yeah, I mean, I could sit around and be totally sad about it and be depressed and give up, but that's kind of ridiculous. Um, I've got a lot more to say and I've got a lot more to do. So part of it is getting the songs on this album out, getting the works of these composers really out like it should have been 15 years ago when we did it, um, introducing that work to new people and, and even through the album release event, having other artists cover it, getting it into their uh, repertoire. It's a, it's a gift that keeps on giving and that's, I, I've been given a lot even though this might have been taken away, all it says to me is, okay, well, what are you supposed to do now? I mean, I'm working, for example, on a, on a children's book. Um, you know, it's like Julie Andrews and I, once you aren't able to sing anymore, what do you do? Well, you, you know, you write, you write a children's book. Um, <laughs> I keep saying I'm going to get the tattoo on my, on my knuckles, WWJD, but it'll be for Julie, right? What would Julie do? Um, and she's gone on and had a magnificent career. You find other things to do because you're a creative person and you have something to give. If you shut down because something bad happened to you, what you're losing out because there's the joy that you get by giving out comes back to you tenfold. That's what I've found. Um, and so working with the producer on this particular album has been a joy of an experience, uh, somebody that I had not worked with before, but I knew um, from his work as, as a radio producer um, and getting to work with these uh, these artists, helping to promote the American Songbook Association because our album release event is a benefit for them. Like it's all about giving. Um, because you get back so much more. That's that's really what I feel like. And so I, that's how I always try to face adversity. Like, all right, what am I supposed to learn from this and how can I continue to give? Well, I want to talk to you about children's books. Right. All right. And so I, I'm, I'm thrilled that you're getting into this space. And, you know, I, I love that you have taken that same creative spirit that's within you and just applied it to a new, wonderful medium. That's really wonderful for me to hear selfishly i'm glad you're getting into the children's book business because i have a one-year-old and he's you know we're doing the children's book thing with him and i gotta be real with you man the the children's book game is filled with a lot of hacks there's a lot of bad children's book authors and i they have been just subjecting my son to some really really bad stuff and so I'm happy to hear you're getting into the children's book space. Tell me you're going to write some children's books that are not horrific for parents like me to have to read where I'm falling asleep halfway through it, or I'm just kind of flipping three or four pages because my kid doesn't know what I'm reading anyway, just right. to get through this awful book that I feel that I regret that I had bought. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll try. I mean, there's no guarantee. I am a first time author. I am working with uh, an editor who is a 20 year veteran of, of Random House and Disney Press. So I, I got an expert to help me. Gotta be honest, just like I do when I'm performing, right? I hire the best musicians because all they do is make you look good. So I've got an idea, I've got a vision and they help carry it out. And that's what I'm doing with this. So the vision for, for the particular book that we're writing and uh, we, we couldn't get it done in time for this Christmas, but it's based on a song that I recorded on my most previous album back in 2015, this really great, cute little jazz tune called Jingles the Christmas Cat. Oh, I like uh, it already. I heard. Oh, yes. Uh, I heard a live version of this at uh, Feinstein's Club in San Francisco. Uh, Freddie Cole, who is Nat King Cole's brother, still performing. He's a great jazz pianist and singer himself. And he happened to come to San Francisco. And we, I went to see his show. And it was in December. So he said, well, I guess I better do a Christmas song or two. And in addition to Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, which his brother made famous, he pulls out this little song, Jingles the Christmas Cat. It's adorable. It's an adorable little song. 
And so I talked to him after and found out, you know, who wrote it. And, and there was only one recording of it at the time, which was Freddie's. Uh, and then he shared his chart with me, which was great. We went off and, and did our own version of it. Uh, and it has struck me for the last eight years since we did it, that there was no, there needed to be an origin story for jingles like Rudolph or Frosty or any, you know, any of those things. What's, what, where did jingles come from? It's just, it's kind of, the song takes place where, you know, he's already doing his thing, working for Santa. Um, and so uh, I had been dwelling on this for a while. Like, wouldn't it be cool if jingles had his own this little story, you know, and I'm trying to imagine what the, what the Rankin Bass, you know, <laughs> Christmas special would look like in my head. Uh, and so I just, I, I drafted something together. Um, and work and I'm working with this editor and uh, we're hoping it'll be out in time for next Christmas. But it's a it's a really great story because the the moral of the story is your and much like Rudolph, right? Your what you perceive to be your flaws, what is what people make fun of you for can be your greatest strength. And Rudolph had this nose, they tried to cover it up. They were trying like, "Oh no, don't be different than anyone." It turns out, "No, no." That's what made him special. That's what made him unique in the world. And the same kind of story with Jingles. And I would I would hope that that would be the lesson that parents like you can translate to their children. Don't, don't be afraid of what's weird or different about you. Celebrate it and do something with it. Russ, I'm telling you right now, okay? I don't know anything about, I've never heard the song of the Jingles, the Christmas Cat. It sounds like it's delightful. Never heard it. I don't know anything about your Jingles, the Christmas Cat story. And even with that, I know unequivocally, I have never been more certain you have like a billion dollar Christmas or children's book idea. Just the name Jingles, the Christmas Cat. You have an empire on your hands, okay? That's not just one book, okay? That is the adventures of Jingles, the Christmas Cat doing all sorts of things jingles the christmas cat goes to the store jingles the christmas cat goes to the beach you have like there's like 20 books in there at right. least three animated specials that are going to air every christmas night right next to charlie brown's christmas tree right. and that that river bottom nightmare band one like you got you have an idea there i mean i i am all in on jingles the christmas cat please awesome. Get these books coming so I can read them to my kids so I don't have to read them this god-awful children's book stuff. I swear, Russ, I had I read a book to my kid yesterday. The author rhymed the word tree with tree. <laughs> wow. And I, I just I I, I that, that same thing you did in there where you just like your right. head dropped into your knees. That's what I did. You know, it well it, the, the nice thing, uh, I, and I always think the best children's books have an appeal to an adult. There's a sensibility behind yes! it, right? Not just, look, there's colors and words on a page that don't mean anything. Like you should be able to take that story. I mean, look at us. I mean, we read children's, but like, if you think about, I don't know how old you are, but uh, Charlotte's Web, for example, like that's still a great book. I read that when I was in second grade and I still enjoy it today. Like it's a great story and there's a moral and there's there's love and joy in it. And that's that's what I want with everything that I do. I mean, I talked about that before, but these children's books um, and it's a series of Christmas oriented books. I'm if you look at my back catalog, I'm primarily a Christmas artist, Christmas crooner. Um, and so I love the Christmas season. And um, and so I want these books to sort of be a series of stories around, uh, you know, the Christmas season, uh, so that uh, they're not just the commercial crass crap. That there's actually a something there that you can take away. Like I say, there's the uniqueness of a person, and that's the gift. That's their Christmas gift, right? And so, how do you share that with the world? Um, so I'm glad I'm glad that it appeals to you. That makes me feel good. You're you're my you're my market researcher. One. You are sitting <laughs> on a gold mine here. I mean, I would invite you to come back on the show again, but I feel like you know, this time next year, you might be so famous for this obviously hit of a of a children's book theme. You might not have time for our radio show anymore. <laughs> I, I will so you promise you I'll come back. You need to promise me when you're the next damn Dr. Seuss that you still make time for our piddling little show and that uh, the rocket ship to the moon that's going to be piloted by Jingles the Christmas Cat does not take you far, far away from us. That's an am Oh my God. I'm already imagining like the cat and he's got like a little Christmas wreath around his neck. Oh, the merchandising alone, Russ. Right? 
goodness gracious. Oh, man. We didn't even talk <laughs> enough about your album because we just... Here. Let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even get too much into your album because we just got... We went down a children's book rabbit hole. Let me ask you another question. Let me ask you a question about sort of like the midpoint of your career because I think there is a, a nice conversation thread to be had here. Uh, sometime around the 90s, you had taken a break from music to work in Silicon Valley tech scene, as I think everybody did in the 90s. Like, we all went right. to Silicon Valley to work in the tech scene in the 90s. Um, yeah. Did you learn any lessons from that time that informed your work as an artist? You learn anything about business or entrepreneurship that you're like, this is going to make me a better creator when you went back into music? I did. Um, you know, I, I, I had I, there were some positive lessons and some negative lessons for sure. Um, let me start with the negative one first. What I learned is the, the saddest part of it all to me, I was part of the first dot-com boom. So in 1999, 2000, when it really crashed, when the, web, the, the, the whole web economy went down. And the saddest part to me was realizing all of the human capital that had just evaporated, like all the time. I used to sleep under my desk you know, like we got to get that product out and, and, uh, and I was in support. That's my main part in, in all of that. And, you know, just being there to make sure that, that the company was successful and all that. And then it just, poof, it's gone, right? The, the, you know, it, it was all built on a dream and realizing all of the time that, that I was apart from my family, that I don't want to say it was a waste because I learned from it, but I could have spent my time better. Like I, I, I didn't get mm. that back. That was that was the sort of a negative reinforcement. Don't do that again. The positive though that I got out of it was understanding a lot about marketing, a lot uh, understanding about uh, profit and loss, about a business plan, about what you were going to do. So when I when I went through all of that and I finally uh, decided at one point, okay, this is it. I'm I'm leaving and I'm going to go off and do my do my music. I was very clear with myself and all the people around me. I'm giving myself five years. It's a five-year plan. If I'm not making money and living off of it in five years, I go back to work. Like I'm just going back to corporate life. Um, and uh, my musical director uh, used to find it hysterical because when I would, we, I would make him sit down with me uh, this time every year and show him the business plan in a PowerPoint deck of what we're going to do for the next year, what our goals were, where we're going to go. Okay, we're gonna put out an album. We're gonna hit these certain clubs, these milestones. Here's what the tour is gonna to look like, and it was all and it was all aspirational, right? Like none of it was booked, but you gotta have a plan. You gotta have a dream, but you gotta have a plan to get there. It doesn't just happen. Like not, you know, we all hear these stories about you know uh, people like Loewe, who is you know suddenly touched at whatever age she is, twenty something. And it feels like the gods fell down on her, but she's been working her butt off since she was a little girl, and and is getting the 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 you know the attention that she deserves at this point, and for all yeah. the work that she's done. Um, and so that's what I got out of it mostly was to be a better business person and and to hire the people who can help you when it's not your expertise. So I had an attorney who helped me out looking at contracts because I'm not an attorney. And, you know, you can sign your life away and not realize what you've done um, pretty easily. And so trying to make sure that I had experts on my side that I could depend on. To be honest, the business of show is just that it's like 90 percent business and it's only 10 percent show. The artistry like you, you're always struggling with. I just want to I just want to go and sing. I just want to go and have a show and entertain people. But like, that's the teeniest tip of the iceberg. All the rest of this is the hard, shitty part of my French work that has to be done, has to go into it to allow you that little 10% tip of the iceberg. And people just don't realize everything underneath it. How many hundreds of people are involved. And if you think about someone like, you know, Madonna, the thousands of people that are making their living through that machinery because that's all required to get that done. And a lot of, I, I find a lot of young artists uh, who are just starting out think, oh, well, I'm just going to go on TikTok and I'm going to be famous. Like it doesn't quite work like that. You, you have to put in the work more than just putting a video on social media. There's a lot of work that goes into it. 
Our guest has been Russ Lawrenson. He is an acclaimed crooner of the American Songbook. His latest release, Standard Time, live in New York, will be out on December 1st. Be sure to check it out and visit RussLawrenson.com. Russ, before we let you go, one last question for you. Do you have any last tips for the indie creators out there to help them move their careers forward? Um, yeah, I, especially now having gone through my, uh, the, 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 the cancer, the adversity that we talked about, don't stop, just find a way around. Like you're going to be going down your path and there's going to be a wall. So figure out how you're going to climb over it, go around it, dig under it. Don't let the walls stop you because that the, the world is built to stop you from getting your art out. And, and you can't allow it. So I guess probably the in a word, it's persistence, right? Be persistent, keep going, keep true to your vision. You're the only one who knows what's in here and what's in here. Get it out because it, it's the only way you're going to be happy is to get it out and share it. Great insight. Russ, thank you so much for joining the show. Absolutely. Please don't be a stranger. We'd love to have you on again real soon. Even when you become like the next Dr. Seuss, like, please find time for us. I would love to hear how the children's book journey goes. And as you move forward, this next phase of your creative career. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ryan. This has been a joy. Our thanks to Russ Lawrenson and Katie Zaccardi, producer Lauren, as always. And thanks to all the viewers and listeners for checking out Break the Business. It's a pleasure to have you. We'll see you next week.